If this is Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Um, but turns out I didn't have to really make that choice. It wasn't a fork in the road. It was more like a kind of a death and a resurrection type. Ooh, there you go. There you go. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up on spring break week. Later on the pod, we've got a very special guest with us. To me, Spencer Helms is an advocate and author who's got a new book out titled Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. And we have a guest interviewer in that interview that you're going to want to certainly stay tuned for because the director of Our Racialist Gospel, Reverend Starlet Thomas, is joining us for that conversation. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Happy spring break. Well, it's coming to an end. It is. It's oh, so sad. Aww. I know. And this is the last year that our calendars, I don't know, knock on wood, will be dictated by a school calendar. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? That is absolutely we crazy. We have our youngest who is set to, again, knock on wood, <laughs> <laughs> graduate from college in uh, in June. And so, yeah, this is the end of an era for us. It is. Well, it's been a good week. Both the boys have been here, actually. Now, I will say it's been a good week. It did not start out as a good week for yours truly because... I had a little bit of a cold coming back from uh, uh, South by Southwest in Austin. You had a terrible plague, but that's not <laughs> what I was thinking. That's not the direction I thought you were going with this because uh, we did, like you said, we had both of our boys home for a few days. Um, one, because he is on spring break, and then the other because we had a big family event yeah. that um, we went to that was super fun, celebrating the, a big birthday for, for my aunt. And... Um, yeah, I just want to say that in this new era of technology and being able to do classes virtually and all these things is is wonderful, except that now these college students are able to come home and still have finals and papers to do once they get home. <laughs> Which, yeah, mom and dad, I want to come back a little early. Oh, by the way, I've got three papers due. And so they bring all of that stress and angst with them, which, woohoo, we love our kids being home. Yay. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing I want to say about that is having, well, I mean, in general, having kids is a real mind, and I'm not even going to say it so Cliff doesn't have to bleep it out. <laughs> but we know having kids in general is that. But having adult kids as we are embarking on this stage of life is wonderful and amazing, but also it just, it, it, I, we talked about this the other night, such a, um, I don't know, it messes with your head because all of your parenting experience is set to, you want to raise these children to fly, be free and to go out into the world and, and to be independent. And that's wonderful and lovely. And so when our oldest, who's now 25, comes home now I always ask him before he leaves are you ready to get home mm. and he said yes you know I'm ready to get home which, which, oh stab in the heart no no I'm, I mean I, I love that because yeah. seeing him kind of transition to where this is no longer coming you know to his home 
And it's like, it's what you want. You know, you want your kids to be out there and to be working in the world and to be happy and to to kind of transition from that. Oh, but this isn't your home anymore. It just, right. it messes with your head. It's like how you've worked all of these years to, to get to this point with this kid. And then when he says it, like, I'm ready to go home. I just like, Oh, <laughs> you're killing me, but also please leave because, because we're having to run the dishwasher like every, every day. day. Well, I don't know what that's about <laughs> that. And I mean, besides the, you know, million diet Cokes that you leave out for me to pick up. Now I've got more cans to well, pick up, but they're not diet Coke <laughs> well, cans. You notice let's, I said cans. Let's be honest about that. There might be some bottles in there too, but yes, the mess that four human beings create in a house. How did we ever exist? I don't know. <laughs> I don't <It's>, know. <laughs> we just waited our way through it. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So, so, you know, every stage has been wonderful and lovely and I'm loving this stage of having adult children, but also it just, it, it kind of messes with me a little bit. You know, I remember growing up, um, and especially in my 20s in particular, and I was the oldest uh, in my family. My young, I had That's me, shocking. Me, I'm sure I, audience <laughs> is shocked to hear you were a firstborn. <laughs> it was me and my younger brother. And um, I remember my dad would say something quite often that has resonated with me even today. I don't today. think you can say that on the pod. <laughs> well, he did say that too. <laughs> but you know, like when I would come to him with problems or we would have conversations, he would always remind me that he had never been the father of a 22-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I'd try to remind the boys of that too, that I this is new for me too, because a lot of times when you look up at your parents, you think that, you know, not necessarily they're all knowing, but they have answers and can help you through this. And well, they can. some sort of authority. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's one thing I really appreciate about the relationship we now have with our boys is the authenticity that we're trying to get through this together. And they have been through unprecedented times growing up and especially the last five to six years. I mean, who could have, I mean, who could have foretold a global pandemic shutting the world down? And it's just a reminder that family is always important And at the end of the day, when graduation takes place, whether that's high school or college or your kids move halfway across the country like ours have, that family is what grounds you and family is what is going to be there for you through thick and thin. And we don't have all the answers, but we're going to get through it together. And whether it's a global pandemic or filling the dishwasher up every oh night. Oh my gosh, seriously. And the washer, I'm having to wait in line to use my I know, what's that about? <laughs> dadgum washing machine. It's like, it was like, hey, where are the quarters? You just got to start pouring quarters in this are, thing. Yes. So it's, it's amazing how quickly once the kids leave the nest, you settle as, you know, as we do, as empty nesters, you settle into your routine and get a little bit grumpy when it gets messed up. Yeah. <laughs> they are sitting in my spot right now. As we speak, there's a 22-year-old child <laughs> sitting in my spot you know what on else? the couch. You know what else has been a problem? We haven't been able to watch our programs at night. Our programs? <laughs> I mean, you guys, we're missing our programs. Last night, the yeah, the 22-year-old went out with his friends, and he, he felt bad because it was the last night you were going to be home with right. him. And he said, Dad, I feel bad about leaving you. We're like, no, go, go. We've got a program we've been waiting to watch. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, Ma and Pa settled in our, right. our chairs we and our watched show. our program. <laughs> Uh, well it's been great having them uh we're just so proud of them uh and just uh, wish them the best as they head back to their lives one in california all of the students out there who are returning from spring break we wish them well on their last quarter of school before summer break Absolutely. Well, we got to sit down with a very special person this week, uh, Tamise Spencer-Helms. She's got a new book out, Unleavened Faith. And uh, Reverend Charlotte Thomas sat down with us during the interview as a director of our Resource Gospel Initiative because this book, I know it's not published by a major uh, publisher, but it is very important. She did a fabulous job as a young woman of color talking about race and contextualizing race in a way that is fresh and new and just just did a brilliant job. So I'm so disappointed I couldn't um, be in on the interview. At first we thought I had a conflict sure. and, and so we asked Starlet to to prepare and to, to take my place and then it ended up I was able to listen in on this interview and She's phenomenal. To me, stick us and to church. She, she, she takes she us did. to church. <laughs> and I will say, what you can't see on the on the Zoom because it's audio only is um, the number of I, I've got to ask Starlet how to to do these technical things. But I guess you can clap hands and like yeah, respond. fire. So like <laughs> there's the a lot of fire time on Starlet's screen. It's the clapping hands. It's the the reactions and all of this that you can't see. So I'm, I'm disappointed for our listeners that you can't see her um, reactions and yours as well when you talk about standing up at certain parts of the book, but she's phenomenal. I can't wait to unpack her conversation in the, after the interview, um, but I very much enjoyed it and look forward to kind of uh, working with her in the future and, and promoting and um, her work. Absolutely. Coming up next, to me, Spencer Helms, along with Reverend Starlet Thomas. Stay tuned. Hey, Good Faith Weekly listeners, we've got an incredible opportunity coming up April 25th through 26th of this year. The Birmingham Montgomery Civil Rights Good Faith Experience is right around the corner. Join Starlet Thomas, Bruce Gorley, Missy Randall, and myself as we retrace the steps of those who made history and nurture a faith that moves us all forward. For more information, go to goodfaithmedia.org and click on Experiences. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Tamise Spencer-Helms is a published author, speaker, and theologian based in Richmond, Virginia. At 20 years old, Tamise was drawn to full-time ministry. After 15 years, Tamise founded Subculture Incorporated, a nonprofit that provides holistic support and crisis relief for black college students. In addition to their bachelor's degree in religious studies and copywriting from Virginia Commonwealth University, Tamise has a master's of arts in contextual leadership and a master's of arts in theology. Over the years, Tamise has been a change maker and pioneer for young people in her community. Her debut book, Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd is available wherever you purchase your book. Tamise, welcome. Thank you for having me, Mitch. It's good to be here. <laughs> it is great to have you. It's an honor. I mean, uh, Star's with us today, and we are really excited about this conversation. I had a chance to to look over the book, read some chapters. Uh, it is just remarkable. Congratulations on the book, first and foremost. And we want to tell our readers, after listening to this interview, you're going to want to go and purchase <laughs> Faith Unleavened. 
Do yes. it now. Don't pass go because it's that good. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I have been getting some really amazing feedback, so I really do appreciate that. Awesome. So, Tamis, the concept for your new book came from a difficult time in your life. Yeah. Uh, you describe it as being in a wilderness between the murders of Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. Yes. Uh, what sent you into that wilderness and what inspired you to write from it? So I would say that the thing that precipitated the wilderness experience was was definitely the death of, of Trayvon Martin. Um, in that time frame, I was in a ministry context where the brutality that was taking place, some of the issues that were taking place was just not being addressed. Um, the, most of the conversations that we were having were around colorblindness or um, Romans 13 and respecting authority, but no one actually ever spoke to the pain of the fact that this young 17-year-old boy was minding his business and did not go home that night. Um, and so for me, the inability of the leadership and even my own theology to speak to that moment for me, to provide me any kind of solace or understanding or even a container to place something like that. And um, that began this process of what I'm calling a wilderness period, um, where I wandered for a little while trying to find God and hear God in the midst of all of that. Um, and so that's kind of what started the journey. And then once, um, you know, George Floyd happened, it just so happened that at that time in my life, I was in a completely different place. Um, I was handling the news of George Floyd differently. Um, I had my daughter at that time. And so my whole life was just different. My whole perspective on myself and God were different. My theology was different. And so because of that, I really did frame it as a wilderness because that's typically what happens when Yahweh takes their people into the wilderness um, is that they emerge with a new understanding of God, a new understanding of themselves and a new way to live in and move in the world. Um, and so that to me really made the most sense when they, when I was thinking about what to title the book. Beautiful. Now, Tamisa, I want to do a follow-up uh, on that answer because it was just so beautiful. Um, so this began with the murder of Trayvon Martin, and obviously there's so many names that we could vocalize between Trayvon and George Floyd and even after the murder of George Floyd. In the summer of 2020, during the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd, something happened in this country that Yes. That was spawned a, a global movement rising yeah. up for calling out police brutality and yes. a, uh, a revolution, if you will, regarding policing in general. Mm -hmm. And then more so a call for racial, racial, uh, racial justice. Yes. What do you think brought that to the, I mean, George Floyd was certainly the, the murder of George Floyd was certainly the catalyst that brought yes. this to the forefront but this has been bubbling over for some time, and you do a great job of contextualizing that in the book. Yes. What do you think happened in that summer, and why do you think the death of George Floyd inspired so many people to stand up, speak out, and step forward? Well, you know, I think people had time, right? I think a lot of um, the pandemic was obviously tragic, uh, but what it did do is force us to reckon with a lot of things. Um and I think one of those things was race relations in our country. And I think the fact that in 2020, a man could have a knee on his neck for nearly 10 minutes with bystanders around pleading just to honor this person's humanity. 
I think when that level of indifference towards the dignity of a person is on display, it's really hard to be indifferent about that. <laughs> and sure. it's really hard to ignore that or to come up with some sort of a theology. It was in, in the face of those folks. And I, and I'm, um, you know, I hate that um, something like that has to be an impetus for people to kind of begin to speak up about, hey, all all life is important to God. It seems as though some lives don't matter as much in our country. And so that's something that we as the church want to say, this is we care about the least of these. We care about the marginalized. And because of that, we want to speak up and declare, no, your life matters. You have dignity. What's been happening systemically in this country to people who look like you is not okay with us. Um, and I think that the time and the kind of the space to reckon and think about, to reflect, really led to a lot of that activism we saw in that summer. It was something I had never seen before. I mean, the idea that a global movement, it was global. I mean, they would show scenes from all these different countries of people marching, and there was such a beautiful solidarity in that. There was a redemption in that for me. Because my experience in saying things like Black Lives Matter or saying things like that in the church was I was ostracized. I was rejected. Um, people questioned my faith, questioned my love for God, questioned most everything about me. But for the whole world to say, you're not wrong, your lives matter, was so redemptive and healing for me to go, God, um, if you don't do it, the rocks will cry out, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what it felt like happened during that summer is that God made a definitive statement that these lives matter and they're being disproportionately snuffed out. Um, and we need to do something about that. Uh, and so that's where I feel like um, George Floyd was just catalytic. It just seemed to be the right amount of, um, it just seemed to be the right circumstances for something like that to really take hold. Uh, and it was something you really couldn't look away from. I mean, it, it was just not, what are the extenuating circumstances? It's nine minutes and 29 seconds, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, what warrants that type of brutality? Your words and your work uh, with Subculture are incredibly inspiring, and the book, again, is just uh, terrific. One of the metaphors that you use, in fact, it's in the title of the book, Faith Unleavened. One of the metaphors that you use in examples is the example of unleavened bread. It runs as a theme throughout the entirety of the book. Can you educate our listeners on why unleavened bread spoke to you so clearly? And I do have to make a confession here. When I read your... Yes reasoning for using unleavened bread for this moment and this topic, I stood up from my chair and went, amen. That's exactly what we're talking about. It's that good. So go ahead. I see you stop. You're giving a head. head nod in. That means you were preaching. That's right. I know what that means. That's a universal head nod. Um, yeah. So it's so interesting, Mitch. I, I don't know how or why, uh, the Lord um, gave me this metaphor. So again, you know, three years after Trayvon, I was in a very dark place um, in terms of my faith. I really loved Jesus, but I didn't know what else. Um, and God speaks to me and says, remember, I'm the bread. I'm bread of life. Right. And um, it, it was something, you know, in the book, communion plays a very important role for me because it probably is the one 
sort of plumb line constant in my life, no matter what happened, you know, through all those years in white evangelicalism. And then once I kind of got away from the toxicity of that, uh, communion never went away. Um, and so when Jesus says to me, I am the bread, don't forget that I am the bread. It was kind of an alert to me that I need to rethink. And it was almost like it was finally an answer mm -hmm. after these years of silence, right? Where are you, God? Like, what is happening? And why are none of these pastors or leaders talking about it? Like, do you not care? Like, where are you? So when God says to me, you know, I am the bread, I already know about unleavened bread. I'm in, you know, I've been in seminary. I knew all of those things. But what I didn't know was that leaven originated in Egypt. <laughs> and that to me was like, what? Because again, you have this sense where I feel like God really brought me out of bondage to, I think a lot of, you know, Christian nationalism looks just like any other empire, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea that God says to these people, I am calling you out to the wilderness where you can worship, the leaven can't come. So, so this invention, this ideology of this empire, right? And we're using it metaphorically, obviously, but the leaven of Egypt is not allowed in our bread. God didn't say give up bread, just leaven, right? And so there, there seemed to be something really deliberate in that for me. And the fact that they commemorate that feast every year, that there's something God is trying to communicate um, in the fact that his people are inaugurated with this unleavened bread, right, in the wilderness. Um, and so it speaks to a level of, of vulnerability that you have to embrace and a level of dependence on God um, and and the scariness of like not knowing, right? The wilderness was inductive. It wasn't like they knew, you know, we two rights and a left and we're in the promised land. It wasn't like that. It was day by day. What are we going to eat? Which way do we turn? Who's going to protect us? And I think there are a lot of people who are who are recognizing toxicity in their faith but they're asking those questions too. And God is saying, come with me to the wilderness. I'll teach you how to worship, right? Like, and I think that that was such a beautiful, I wish I wish that I had planned it all like that. <laughs> it just kind of came and I feel really grateful because it really did help me um, organize my thoughts and my story uh, in a beautiful way. It was very cathartic um, to see, oh my goodness, this whole time, this was kind of like a setup, right? Um, <laughs> And yeah. so I'm 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 grateful to God for that. And I think the only thing I could say is that he keeps his people, you know, like there was a I just had gotten to a place where I was like, I'm done. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how to like not be a Christian and love Jesus, but I think that's where I'm at because sure. I, I can't if this is Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um but turns out I didn't have to really make that choice. It wasn't a fork in the road. It was more like a kind of a death and a resurrection. Type Ooh, there you go. There you go. Ooh. You know See, I mean? that's so, I mean, again, the metaphor. Turn to your neighbor. I know, right? High five your neighbor. <laughs> now, see, now, start, now you neighbor. know, when I read that, I stood up. <laughs> I gave a testimony <laughs> right oh there. It's so, it's so funny. I'm so happy to have you because it's like it, most of the time when you do podcasts, it's like you just talk and talk and talk, but you don't get the like the interaction <laughs> of this because <laughs> it feels like talking to just people, siblings in the Lord, right? Like it's a very different feel. So I Absolutely. appreciate it. Oh, we're going to get a little bit of church going on. You started <laughs> preaching. I don't know what you expect us to do. <laughs> I have this for you. In another part of this book, uh, you you share the story of meeting white Jesus in hell. Oh, 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 oh. white Jesus <laughs> in hell. You had it. 
sharing uh, that story for our listeners and talking about how white Jesus uh, plays a significant role in sustaining white supremacy? Yes. So I I did. I literally met white Jesus in hell. (laughs) So I went to this play. My friend told me it was a play. And so we went. I was 17 at the time. And uh, we went and I had already had a divine encounter with God. Like I felt like I had a relationship with God that was forming and beautiful and, you know, it was immature, but it was, it was there. But I went to this play and they take you through all of these scenes. I don't know if you've you've ever been to one of these, but they're kind of like, they call them hell houses or um, heaven's gates, hell's flame. That's the um, play that I went to. And so at the end, Jesus is in the staircase and there's all this light and you've watched these different like rooms that are blocked off, like scenes from, you know, wayward teen. It was almost like if you're a teenager and doing the normal teenager sins, then you have like the kind of the end of those choices. So you had like drunk driving accidents or like, you know, abuse. I mean, it just really, when you think about it, it's like they really traumatized those kids. Like it was very traumatizing. Yeah, it, I mean, it's they, a, it's, they had it's, makeup and, you know, it's sirens. abusive. In my it opinion, really, it's abusive. So, it yeah. yeah. I think it's designed to scare the hell out of you because it does, you know. <laughs> Um, and then at the end, Jesus stands up and says, you know, is your name in the book of life? I had no idea about the book. That there was a book of life. I didn't know that there was a list that God was keeping. I didn't know any of those things. Um, and so I say, you know, sure. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I want to be in the, I, if you're keeping a tally, then sure. I want to be on the list. And um, then I had to go and do the Romans road. Right. So that was when the point I think that that's when the entrance of a new way of thinking about God happened was when after I said, I want my name in the book, they took me down this corridor and now we're doing you're a sinner and you have to make these confessions. And it was like, it was kind of a bait and hook type of a situation. Um, And so, yeah, I would say that that began my, my entrance uh, into white evangelicalism because I wasn't aware of another way to do faith. Like I, the way that, it was presented to me. This is mature Christianity. These are the people who are really doing it. They care about the Bible. They're serious about their faith. They're passionate. They're on fire for God. Like, and so why wouldn't you as a 17 year old who is already relatively self-righteous and figuring yourself out, why wouldn't you want to be a part of something like that? Um, and so I did, I was in it from, from 2001 to 2012 or whatever you would say um, around 2012. So that was kind of the. <laughs> it was an incredible story, but not. Uh, it culminated in the fact that this, this, this has so many has so many implications in so many different venues. Mm-hmm. But white Jesus forgot your name. Yes. <laughs> he wrote your name down in the book of life, but then he forgot it, didn't he? Yes. He called me the wrong name. He so called you the wrong name. <laughs> like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> what name did you put in that book? Because that is not my name. <laughs> it, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it just that's guys, but that spoke to me. I've been in those hell houses, and it just—I mean, you—you you really able, were able to, uh, to 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 capture kind of the essence of white evangelicalism and the way it use is used to oppress and abuse people. And you did it in a beautiful way. And I will, even more so, I love the fact that you are advocating for an alternative way, which I love. Right. Right. I do think that white Jesus is what happens when the Jesus of the scriptures 
is leavened with whiteness, right? When Jesus talks about leaven, he talks about leaven as this subtle, pervasive, invisible agent that gives rise to bread. So, <laughs> so whiteness really functions like that uh, in society and also in the church. And when that whiteness animates the Lord Jesus, for people of color, that becomes a real um, difficult thing to navigate. Uh, because when you know anything about race, and I'm sure I know you all know all of this, uh, but when you when you learn about race and you learn why race was created, that whiteness was a technology used in society, right? That a society was ordered around this hierarchy where white is at the top and black is at the bottom. It is predicated on anti-blackness. And people don't really understand that. And I think that that was the hardest part was as I'm going on my journey and I'm learning about these things, I'm, I'm saying you all don't understand how wicked this whiteness was. It hates blackness. It, it, it only, whiteness can only persist at our expense. Mm -hmm. And so what does a black person do when Jesus is animated with anti-blackness? Um, and that part was very difficult because at some point you start to realize like, I'm being asked to conform to this image, but that's not how God made me. Um, and I had this realization, I was leaving blackness to become white. I wasn't mm -hmm. maturing in my faith, um, but it, they were conflated because what is highest and best, of course, God, what is purest and, and most beautiful, of course, God, but also whiteness in society. <laughs> um, that's what we measure when we say we're going to do black theology, you veer, right? Because the normal theology is white theology. We don't name white theology because if you did, it wouldn't be a thing. So there's all of these things where you have to kind of realize that the norm is whiteness um, and everything else has to kind of orient itself around that. And also kind of pay homage to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if you come against whiteness enough, you will recognize the repercussions of that very fast. Right. Um, and that was really hard. That was hard. It's a very hard thing to experience to realize what I was bamboozled. Like what yep. happened? Um, but then to also um, revel in the fact that my love for Jesus was intact. Mm. How is God? God is um, above whiteness above every name that is named and so for me once i felt like i had permission to be like whiteness is a principality and we can call it out and come against it and i have no shame about that white people are siblings yeah. people of european descent <laughs> those are siblings that's different and learning how to like separate those things really helped me navigate my relationships helped me navigate the way I spoke about things. And I really tried to do that well in the book. Yeah. Um, and you did a great job and, and, and picking up on that theme. One of the things that I really appreciated about the book was your authenticity and your vulnerability uh, describing your existence in liminal space. Mm -hmm. This, this you know, space between despair and hope and going back and yeah. forth. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you just articulated that very well. So with that in mind, because for those of us who are advocating for a raceless gospel, for those of us who are advocating for, you know, you know this for racial okay. justice overall, it can become a daunting and despairing yes. practice. So to me, here's what I want to ask you. 
inspire us with some hope? Some hope. I think if my European descendant brothers and sisters would let it, um, I think what the book could do is charge you on your own journey of finding something to be rooted in outside of whiteness, because it's a myth. So I think a lot of the things that we see, like what we see in January 6th, it is not so much like the fact that they really feel they're going to be replaced. It's more who am I and what will I be? Because America was built on white supremacy. <laughs> so you see all these shifts taking place and it does feel like we're losing America, right? Like feels like we need to make America great again, right? But what they're saying is they're recognizing these demographic shifts that are taking place. But this is the thing is that whiteness hurts white people too, because it never lets them go on a journey of actual authentic self-love. It never actually lets them go on a journey of being rooted in actual place and people. I mean, there were tribes and clans in Europe. You people have you guys have ancestors like you have stories that can be told. But when you come over here and, and your whole identity, no one ever asked you to really check what your identity was in. And so what we have right now with this backlash is like this understanding that I'm not rooted. Like It's it's frenzy mm -hmm. uh, because they're realizing that they're not rooted. But some of my brothers and sisters who are like doing ancestry work that are white are so grounded such beautiful people to talk to. I remember, um, you know, my sister-in-law, um, they're German and she's starting to pray in German. And when I tell you how I'm touched by that, because it's like, she's connected with her ancestry, her mm. roots. So when she prays to God in German, it's a mother tongue for her. It is something that is very beautiful. And my thought wasn't, mm, there you go. It was like, wow, this is so beautiful. And I really hope for white people that they go on this journey um, because whiteness, it comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We've seen that again and again and again and again. Um, and it's doing it to white folks too. Amen. Well, besides preaching up a fit on this podcast and writing this amazing book, uh, you're also the founder of Subculture Incorporated. Yes. Subculture equips and empowers dynamic, spiritually grounded, critically conscious, and compassionate Black leaders to lead the charge of innovation, restoration, and societal change in America and the world. Just a few things. Tell us more <laughs> about the recent work of Subculture. I love it. It's still like my little baby who's five, year, five years old in August. So as old as my daughter, actually. Um, I birthed them both in 2018. <laughs> so, um, but, but subculture really came out of this pain. It came out of a pain and a quote. So the quote was, was Desmond Tutu, where he talks about, you know, um, when Jesus comes to folks and they say they're hungry, Jesus doesn't say, is that social or political? He says, I feed you because the good news to a hungry person is bread, right? And I was doing ministry work in white evangelicalism, and it wasn't that it wasn't fruitful. It just was incomplete. Um, and it was almost always abstract and theoretical, right? And so let's go on retreats and, you know, we're going to do kayaking and hiking and meet God in the woods. 
but my students needed God to meet them like in their financial aid package. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, that was a problem for me because I kept having to watch my students who were, some of them were the first people in their families to go to college, not be able to fix the car. So now you can't fix a car, so you can't get to work. And so you're going to miss your payments for your room and board. And I've had to literally walk students home, like pack your stuff, take you to the train station because you can't afford to be in school anymore over an alternator in your car, an oil change, you know, just things that, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to work with black students for the latter half. But before that I was working with all kinds of students. I was multi-ethnic at Emory. And so I was watching the counterparts of my black students, like grandma just helped me out or grandma just got me a new car. And it was so, um, the disparity was just in my face to the point where it got to the point where I can't continue to say that, um, there is good news, but there's no teeth to it. It's not It's not affecting their actual daily lived experience. It's just in the by and by, God provides. It's all ethereal. They don't need that. They need cash money <laughs> to stay in school because if they don't get this book, they're not going to pass the exam and they're going to fail, right? And their scholarship needs them to actually finish their school years on time. So there were all of these things wrapped up in that where I thought, Let's not maybe reinvent the wheel because I was working for a really amazing ministry, uh, but maybe let's reinforce it with this practical element. So what subculture does is we come in and we do crisis relief. So what was happening in the beginning was that staff workers or people doing ministry with these students, now they have a person to go to. Hey, my student needs their car fixed. I mean, we just fixed the guy's car. Where is he at? I think he was at FAMU. Um, so it's national. They they apply for crisis relief. We come through, we check their references. We make sure that there's somebody that can actually corroborate the need, but also help them infuse this into their discipleship somehow, right? So that it's not just free money, but that there is, there's a people that are saying, this is God as well. Um, here is God as well stepping in. Um, and so we definitely want to make sure that there are references and people like that um, that can help with that. But we do mentoring. Um, so we have, we're trying to develop this fellows program um, to where each student gets a stipend. Um, and then they do these weekly huddles. Um, they meet with a mentor. They get networking opportunities. It's, it's just how can we be the web of support that I watch so many of my students not have? And how can we how can we leverage the good intentions of wealthy white folks, right? And use that to actually deal, do something about the wealth gap and the wealth gap, you know, gets affected when students graduate because then they become a, they get careers. Yeah. Right. And so to me, that's the advocacy work part is the justice piece of if they finish school, typically that's the trajectory towards a career, which is the trajectory towards you know, generational wealth and, and a relative amount of reparation. Right. Um, (laughs) which is a whole different topic, but that's kind of how we, how we function. Um, and I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. Um, well, you should be, you should be, I mean, really like there are students who are graduating. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, that is fantastic. So inspiring. Uh, to me, yeah. Spencer Helms, you are a absolute joy and inspiration to us at Good Faith Media. Thank you so much for joining us on Good Faith Weekly. Congratulations on subculture. Sounds like the work is groundbreaking and just wonderful. And then also congratulations on the new book. Uh, it's just, I mean, again, People need to go buy it. Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. Do not pass go. 
go pick it up right after this podcast. (laughs) Uh, But before we let you go, we've got one last question that we ask every one of our guests. And in light of everything that has been talked about today and the, again, incredible work that you're engaged in, Tamise, what is your more to tell? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, And I think looking at society and the the things that are happening in the church today, I'm trying to argue for a way of doing precedental theology where we look at the precedent in scripture. Um, I think that would really aid us in these vitriolic conversations we're having, because what you'll see in scripture is precedence. (laughs) And we can use that and go, okay, clearly we're not living in the first century and dealing with first century problems, but the precedence of what Jesus is communicating to that context can apply here. And so to me, I've been trying to help people think about that in terms of some of the more recent conversations we're having, because I think about the fact that my ancestors (laughs) basically said, you're reading the Bible wrong. You're telling me that the Bible tells me I am not a human. Um, but that's not true. And so we have precedent for people saying, I know that that's what it seems like it says, but I have an intrinsic knowing that that is off. Right. And so, but no, we celebrate that every February, but those people were actually like confront confronting the way the scripture was being read at the time. (laughs) That's what they were doing. The enslaved folks were saying that's wrong and we will not adhere to that. Um, and so we we forget that, and I think that that does us disservice when we deal with when we deal with contemporary issues, because we're looking at systematic theology instead of precedental theology. Like how has God moved in the ages? Each generation declares your praise to another, and that means that the the way of God moves, but the the context is always going to change. And I'm hoping that somehow by talking about this, it, it's more of a unifying conversation than we've seen. Um, of late. And I'm really hoping to really have more conversations with a mixed multitude at the table (laughs) that is all eating unleavened bread and talking about the goodness of God and being open to having Yahweh lead us each day inductively. Um, So I'm hoping that that that's what we do. So that's the more to tell for me. Beautiful. Uh, That's kind of the theology I'm leaning into now. (laughs) Thank you so much. To me, Spencer Helms, it has been a joy. And for the record, Anytime, and I mean anytime, you want to come back to Good Faith Weekly, you just give us a call because you have been fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. And Star, hey, thanks for filling in for Missy this week. We really appreciate uh, you being our guest host. We got a little church. That's right. (laughs) That's all right. We'll be right back. Thank you. See what you think, Mitch. <laughs> right. Our our next T-shirt. Okay. We need to do. I met white Jesus in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Can you? There is more to tell. There's more to tell, right? I'm gonna have to ask her if we can, like, I don't know, coin that. But I just. Oh my gosh, when I read that in the book, and then when she retold it in the interview, it was like every memory of youth ministry growing up, as well as ministry in some of the churches I served on early on in my career, just came creeping up, and it just was so cringy. And then she talked about, you know, 
the book of life about your name being written. Did, did the Carmen video not play in oh, your head? If it, if it didn't, you definitely were not an evangelical in the eighties and nineties. No, absolutely. You can like revoke your card because. Yeah. And you know, it was a funny story and, and both of us alluded to the fact that it felt very much abusive. And I think I even said in the interview, I hundred mm-hmm. percent thinks it's a, it's spiritual abuse and mental abuse and emotional abuse because I don't know about the ones you went to growing up. They were traumatic. The, the hell houses. Yes. Oh, I, okay. So here's the thing. I'm going to have to revoke my car. I didn't actually go to one. Really? Somehow I missed this. I mean, I knew of them, but I didn't, ever go i mean the scenes, it didn't matter the scenes in my head were way scary were, enough were, i mean just they would they would walk you down it was always held in a church and they would walk you down a hallway and then there would be different scenes and rooms that you would go into and so there would be a drug scene of a, a teenager doing drugs and and that was the most benign one of them all mm-hmm. because then you had a domestic uh, abuse situation where a dad was beating the mom and then the child stepped in and then the dad started beating the child. Uh, And then there was a suicide uh, scenario where a kid would, you know, die by suicide. And the, the, but the worst one was you went into a hospital room and they performed an abortion. What? Yeah. They had a, a young girl on a, on a table they had a vacuum cleaner where you could see through a clear tube, and I don't know what they did, but it was a suction situation. And, I mean, they would walk you through all of these traumatic scenes and then take you down into the depths of hell. They'd turn the heat up and have embers burning or something down there, and Satan would be down there welcoming you to the pits of hell. And then you would go see white Jesus, and That's white Jesus would save you disgusting it's it was yeah it's absolutely disgusting but it's like and and she she was talking i mean i knew of these and i knew about many of the scenes um but I, like i said i haven't experienced one it's probably a good thing knowing my personality that i didn't have to actually go to one of those um but her she, book is so much more than just that of and course. being critical of that because she was just putting that into context of this white Jesus that the church has worshipped ever since the rise of Christianity in Western Europe. So she, well, she just talks about it. faith in that segment about you know going in at seventeen years old and having having a f- experiences with God. And she said, sure, you know it was an immature faith, but mm-hmm. it was forming and it was beautiful and it it was coming along and and we were so in in you know kind of the evangelical space obsessed with. Um, scaring kids into faith, and right. that's not authentic relationship. That's that's coercion. It's manipulative. It's, manipulative. Uh, it's yeah, all it's of these coercion. So, it's manipulative. It's I mean, it just you said it earlier. It's just disgusting. I mean, just absolutely disgusting. And she's she talked about um, also, you know, being asked to as she developed in that kind of lane of her faith journey, being asked to conform to an image, but that's not how God made me. Mm-hmm. And it just struck me, you know, when we're ta- she was talking about in the context of, of whiteness and, and I'm continuing even at my age to learn all of the ways in which that is pervasive in our faith and in our culture and our society and our country. Um, but then I just thought of all of the other people in in the world, you know, not due to race, but due to other factors, are being asked to conform to an image that 
that has been created for them mm-hmm. of what faith is, of what Christ is, of what love means, and how detrimental that is and how um, abusive, like you said, that is to individuals by saying, no, this is the way that it is, and we have created this this defined space that you're allowed to exist in if you want to have a relationship with your creator. Right. You know, and one of the things I really appreciate, and we talked about that liminal space that she's existed in since the death of Trayvon Martin all the way through George Floyd and even today and how she struggles back and forth between those two. And I think that is another fault of this white Christianity is that there is this utopian belief that if you give your life over to Christ, that somehow everything is going to be wonderful and all your posts on Facebook are going to look like, mm-hmm. you know, sound of music and, and things like that. But the reality is faith is a struggle and it is a struggle between, or it's, it's a struggle on this journey through liminal space between the bad moments and the good moments. And you struggle through those difficult moments, hoping for a better future but not only hoping, you're enacting ethics and practical theology to make that better future a reality in the here and now. And so that's one of the things I thought she did just an excellent job of being authentic and genuine in that that space that you were talking about and that attempt to reach out and to see a brighter future, but not just talk about it, actually doing something about it, because not only is she a prolific author, she's also the founder of Subculture Inc. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up. I did want to talk about that because I wanted to talk about her work because as I was listening to her interview and thinking of our experience in this realm, because we live in a college town. And so we have, you know, heard, I know we have very dear friends who work, I mean, Many, many of our friends work at the university, but one in particular who worked in some student services capacity and would call on our church sometimes when things, you know, these college kids who are working hard and and we have one that we know very personally, and I'm going to cry, who had it not been for a community that surrounded them and helped would not have been able to finish. Mm. I love when she said, I'm sorry. Yeah, these kids need Jesus in their heart, but they also need Jesus in their student loans. Well, yeah, I wrote that down. She said, my I mean, students oh my need, need, you know... Um, or carburetors or, you know, need alternators. Jesus to meet them in their financial aid package. And oh my gosh, that's so true. And so we've seen that firsthand. We have, I hope your dad doesn't mind. Oh, sorry. Um, but, you know, he was in a situation years ago where he came to school, you know, on, a, on an athletic scholarship. And so his parents thought, okay, he's fine. And then he said, but I didn't have money to eat. The cafeteria wasn't open on Sundays or whatever day it was. You know, so he had to ask his grandma for help. It's just things that, that uh, if you're not in that space, you may not realize right. that even though this child or the student has been given, given an opportunity to educate themselves, there are so many other factors that go into successfully navigating uh, your educational experience and being able to, you know, launch into the world um, and and be set up for success. And every student, everyone deserves that opportunity. So I just, when she was talking about that, it brought back so many memories of us taking part in and hearing about students who, who needed, like she said, you know, to not to have to drop out of school over an alternator. It's just, it, it should not happen. So I think yeah. her work is amazing. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, she just just a wonderful author. Uh, her ideas in the book, uh, Faith Unleavened, a, a remarkable her work with subculture uh, with young college students is inspirational. And, you know, this whole idea of unleavened bread and using that idea and concept of unleavened as a metaphor for our faith, the imagery of unleavened bread throughout Scripture is remarkable. But when Tamise unpacks that in her book, it just reminded me of the nimbleness within the faith and the importance that at any moment, at any time, as the Hebrews reacted in Egypt, that we must be ready to act based upon our faith in Yahweh, because Yahweh is constantly moving. Yahweh is constantly opening doors for us to escape captivity and to seek new beginnings. And it's just a, it was just a wonderful reminder. So the, the whole concept of unleavened, I thought, was, was fantastic. But you, So you see, Mitch, if you're looking at Scripture historically, um, after the, the amazing thing is, is after thousands of years of having these texts, that they're still in the year of our Lord 20 and 23, someone who can bring a new light to it. That's, that's the beauty and the magic. Oh, sorry. Don't want to say magic. Um, <laughs> that's the beauty it of the magical. Holy Spirit um, who can, yeah, who, who enlightened you. And like you said, you've learned something new in the, in this book and made a new connection. And, and that's, that's an amazing thing. She talked about them. It, she said, we have to realize what this was. It wasn't like, you know, they went out and had GPS and God says, you know, right. take two lefts and then you'll be there. You know, it was just, that's not the way it was. So it was a beautiful illustration. I really loved it. Yeah, it was really good. Well, I, as I said in the interview, I want to encourage everybody to go out and buy the book, Faith Unleavened. Uh, and it is remarkable. To me, Spencer Helms is a remarkable author, person, person of faith. She's just very inspirational. So check out her website and her organization, Subculture Inc. So, well, Missy, we'll be back next week. Absolutely. So we've got a little trip uh, that we're going to take. Yep. Uh, going we'll to go see some good friends in North Carolina, and then we'll be back. All right. Have, Have a good week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>